Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. A little over a month ago, a Texas jury decided that conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, owner of the fake website, uh, fake news website, InfoWars, must pay one family $45 million in punitive damages and $4 million in mental anguish to the parents of a slain first grader for spreading lies about the gun massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012. That amount will likely be slashed to a fraction with Texas law caps on punitive damages. But to recap, Jones spent nine and a half years telling his audience that one of the worst school shootings in American history was a hoax. The parents of slain first grader Jesse Lewis, Neil, and Scarlett brought charges against Jones, telling the court how he made their lives a living hell after their six-year-old son was gunned down in the attack. For nine years, Jones repeatedly said that the shooting was staged. His broadcast of conspiracy theories continued to bring in millions of viewers every month, some of whom went so far as to stalk and harass the parents of the murdered six-year-old and making death threats against the parents. Neil and Scarlett even had to hire security to protect themselves as parents of a dead child. Freedom of speech whether from this pulpit, on the radio, or in a crowded theater, does not mean freedom to incite violence with lurid lies. Can you think of a more unthinkable statement for a grief-stricken mom or dad to have to make to testify that your six-year-old son who was murdered while he sat in school was a real person? Scarlett had to swear under oath that she had actually given birth to him and raised him for the too few years he was alive. 20 children, six adults murdered at Sandy Hook while Alex Jones spins lurid conspiracies that the shootings never happened and that the shattered families were all actors. After lawsuits against Jones were filed, he apologized, claiming that a form of psychosis caused him to believe the conspiracy theory. My sermon on this holiest night of the year is not about Alex Jones 
or the 660,000 Americans killed by guns just in the past 20 years. My sermon is about the sins we condone and evade by saying, that's awful, but I didn't do it. So in the name of personal freedom, I bear no responsibility for anything or anyone other than my own family or the way I take care of my stuff. In the 1960s and 1970s, another very turbulent time for our nation and world, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said, in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. On Yom Kippur, we're not just supposed to get dressed up and look forward to a breakfast tomorrow night. We're supposed to complete a cheshbon hanefesh, a serious accounting of our souls, both individually and collectively. The al confessional we just chanted with happy is repeated as many as 10 times in the High Holy Day prayer book. And rather than confessing to individual sins, al which means for the sin of, it contains 44 distinct categories of wrongdoing, from being hard-hearted to condoning things, to outright misbehavior. I like to think, if you didn't notice, the entire prayer is worded in the plural, not the singular. I like to think that entire prayer is worded in the plural because sins, like triumphs, can be ascribed not just to individuals, but to societies in need of teshuva and in need of hope. Note that I did not say optimism. There's a difference. Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory put it well. Optimism and hope are not the same. Optimism is the belief that the world is changing for the better. Hope is the belief that together we can make the world better. Optimism is a passive virtue, hope an active one. It needs no courage to be an optimist, but it takes a great deal of courage to hope. Our Hebrew Bible is an optimistic book. It is not an optimistic book. It is a hopeful book. People always speak of Judaism as an optimistic faith. It's a hopeistic, ifistic faith. It is one of the great books of hope. If we, as a society, do X, then Y will happen. We just declared, as part of our prayer, we are not so arrogant and stiff-necked as to say before you, Lord our God, we are perfect and have not sinned. Rather, do we confess? We have gone astray. We have sinned. We have transgressed. You might rightly wonder on the individual level, let's go to that, what's so profound about that admission? Would anyone argue to the contrary? Who isn't guilty here of some transgression? We're all imperfect. We know that. What can we possibly learn by simply restating it? A very similar observation applies to the formula for doing repentance in Judaism. 
what we call teshuva. Repentance basically means making things right when we do wrong. And the Jewish process requires four consecutive steps. One requires compensation for injury inflicted because of the offense. Another is a genuine resolve not to repeat the same error. And finally, a prayer for forgiveness. But the first and primary step, which precedes all the rest, is a readiness to acknowledge the wrong we have done both individually and collectively to say not just that I have sinned, I have transgressed, but that we have sinned as a society without a willingness to face that truth, whether the matter be human accountability for making already bad hurricanes like last week's even worse, or preventing senseless American deaths through common sense gun safety legislation without a willingness to admit that there is a major problem to come together on, the process of repentance can't even begin. This does not mean that we should shy away from personal accountability or use society as an excuse. People must be accountable for their behavior. Nobody is exempt. Neither wealth, nor power, nor status, nor race, nor religion make any difference. Every human is fallible and every human is prone to temptation. God tells Cain just that in Genesis. Remember, sin coucheth at the door. Again, the obvious may be confusing. Temptation is universal. Surely Judaism is not unique in this regard. Judaism is not the only religion that teaches human beings are flawed, that human beings are often careless and impulsive. Other faiths, in fact, focus far more intensely on this subject than we Jews do. What sets Judaism apart from all others is not Judaism's recognition of human sinfulness, but its definition of it. For many other people, coping with sinfulness is hopeless. Sinful is something you are, not something you do. For others, human nature is fundamentally flawed. A person cannot change his or herself. Only God can. And unless God does in that view, a person will never be any different. Judaism suggests that sinful is not what we are, but what we do. And if we do what is wrong, we can also do what is right. And not only does God permit us that choice, God wants it and requires it. Many are fond of quoting God's statement to Cain, as I just did, that sin coucheth at the door, but neglect to read the end of the sentence in which God says, sin may be your desire, but you humans 
can rule over it. Sin, then, is our problem, not God's. Its solution, then, is also ours, not God's. Yom Kippur comes to teach us that the solution begins with owning up to the truth. The truth is that we are accountable. We are responsible for everything we do or say, including spreading lies. Now again, that pronouncement sounds like stating the obvious, but it isn't. Have you ever noticed how people resort to every conceivable excuse they can find to avoid responsibility for their words or behavior? Not just Alex Jones. We all invent excuses to justify, defend, or avoid personal responsibility. Those excuses include a laundry list of every human endeavor. We blame pressures at home, pressures at work. A popular devil nowadays is society. Society or imagined groups are responsible for human misfortune. QAnon, the far-right conspiracy theory movement, blames the ills of America on Satan-worshipping pedophiles in government, business, Hollywood, and the media, with an emphasis on Jews. And on the far left, even when addressing systemic inequities is justified, personal responsibility is often de-emphasized. But left or right, people do not become criminals or abduct innocent people because of society. Parents do not abandon children. Students do not quit school. Husbands and wives and other spouses do not cheat on each other. And millions do not blow each other's brains out with bullets or with drugs, all because of society. Society is a favorite cop-out because just like the devil, society is vague enough to exempt any particular person from accountability. This isn't a new phenomenon. When I was younger, and yes, I'm older now, but when I was younger, article after article posed the same question about accountability. One columnist wrote decades ago, just look at what's happening in our own city. This isn't Memphis, by the way. Kids killing each other over tennis shoes. A woman shot in her car driving across a bridge on an interstate. Women raped, people beaten and robbed. Who's to blame? The writer continues, it's not the fault of the police, faulty as some policemen are, and it's not government's fault, much as government bureaucracy bugs us. It's our fault, he confesses. We can wring our hands about our past mistakes, or we can do something. And instead of pointing a finger at failed institutions, we can say to hell with making excuses and get about the business of finding solutions, end quote. Learning to evade personal responsibility begins very early in this world. Have you ever tried to settle an argument among small children? Little Abby comes weeping and pleading for satisfaction in her latest battle with her brother. 
David hit me, she complains. No, I didn't, he says. Yes, he did, she says. She hit me first, he says. He called me names, she says. And on it goes. Each is a victim. Neither is a culprit. And if we think the evasion ends with childhood, how much different are the quarrels between spouses, family members, friends? That disagreement, we don't talk to each other because it was your fault. You started it. Or you talk too much. You spend too much. You ignore me. You annoy me. You make me feel worthless. Everyone's a victim. Nobody is a culprit. And nobody's accountable. How much different is the difficulty of addressing responsibility for national life? And I pray for our elected officials. Congress people in whatever opposing party insists that the president has failed to lead. Whoever's in the White House says that the president is not to blame because Congress has failed to cooperate. Each party blames the other. Meanwhile, the pressing issues of the day fester, the problems multiply, and worst of all, the people who can afford the consequences the least stand to suffer from them the most. Again, everyone's a victim, no one's accountable. And yet we know inside our souls that a life of meaning is always about being accountable, isn't it? It's about being accountable as a parent, as a teacher, as a spouse, as a friend or companion. It's about realizing that what happens to us is largely a consequence of our own choices, not somebody else's. Not to be sure. Sickness, death, even Russia's war may be out of our control. But most everything else is not. Most of the time, we make the difference. And in so many other spheres of our lives, we never question that truth, right? We know that with weight loss and exercise, the result depends on our willpower and personal commitment, not the dietitian or the trainer. We know that healthy teeth depend on good personal hygiene, not on a visit to the dentist once or twice a year. We know even in the artistic realm that achieving competence in music depends on practice during the week, not a lesson once a week. The result depends ultimately on us, not the teacher. The same is true in acting, singing, dancing, and the same is true in achieving fulfillment as Jews. One of my favorite Haftorahs of the whole year is the one our immediate past president, Lori Meskin, will read before our closing service tomorrow afternoon. The story is the one about Jonah and the longest marathon race in history. Jonah does all he can to run away from God, which is another way of running away from himself. And this kind of marathon didn't begin with Jonah, certainly didn't end with him. Inside every one of us, there's a little Jonah. We, we can all name the Ninevehs from which we'd like to run. We also choose the kind of ship we take as we head out for our own little Tarshish hideaway. One ship may turn us on, 
Another may turn us off. The ship may be filled with petty pleasures or just plain fun, you know, escapes which take us far away from all the personal stuff and societal challenges we leave behind on shore. The lesson of Jonah, of course, is to remember that there's no running away because wherever we go, we take ourselves along. God will even find Jonah in the belly of a whale. The only way we ever get away from ourselves, though, is when we change ourselves, when we decide to be responsible and more accountable for ourselves. In short, what people need is not what they think. What people need is not a change of scene. What people need is a change of soul. And that depends on your personal response to simple questions that define our purpose as Jews. Since last Yom Kippur, for instance, have I grown more caring or more callous? Have I become more forgiving or more vengeful? Have I become more tolerant or narrow-minded? Have I become more generous or self-centered? Have I worked to become better or just better off? Have I clung to my core principles or rationalized them away for personal gain? Whatever the answers, we know they reflect what we have done, not what others have done to us. We know that for better or worse, in the prayer books in your lap, we have sinned, we have transgressed, we have gone astray. Yom Kippur is the Jewish time each year to face the truth about us, about the people we love, and about our own responsibility for the way our lives turn out, and the way Judaism in the Mid-South and society in which we live turns out. We have sinned. And we have transgressed. But we can also soothe and heal the wounds we have inflicted and run away from, not only for ourselves and the people in our lives, but for this city for which we are all accountable. Even if we are not personally responsible for failing schools, gun violence, and other challenges. We temple clergy wear white robes and white yarmulkes, not because we're pure by any means, but to convey the Yom Kippur idea that we can start over again, we can begin again, if we are willing to match all our talk, all our noblest intentions with equally outstanding performance. We alone can decide to do better or worse in the year ahead. That choice is ours. It always has been, and it always will be. Amen.